Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, audiobooks written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling tough challenges. Today, I am really pleased to be speaking with Professor Daniel Hatcher with the University of Baltimore School of Law. He wrote The Poverty Industry, an NYU press book. It's about how government agencies, politicians, private businesses and corporations essentially divert money intended to support and care for orphans, foster kids, the destitute and disabled, seniors' nursing homes, in short, the most vulnerable among us, and put that money into their own pockets, including government and private agencies that are actually contracted to protect and serve these vulnerable Americans. It's one of those situations in which laws are written by businesses and agencies receiving the money and passed by a willing Congress and state legislators. In other words, in my view, it may not be right. It may not be moral. But it is legal. Thank you so much for making time for us, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Your book has been widely publicized and praised, and for good reason. Speaking as a book narrator, I'm particularly pleased it's well written. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for your comments and for having me on the show and, sure. and for the opportunity that you're providing to get the word out more, both for my book and, and everyone else that you're interviewing. Well, thank you. First, did I correctly and fairly characterize your book? Yes, I think you did. The only comment I would have at the end is um, I do feel there are aspects of the practices that can be challenged legally. Um, it gets you know a little murky in terms of what's legal and what's not, but on some aspects, I do think there are legal challenges. Writing a book that reflects such astute research and takes so much work and time, what drove you to write The Poverty Industry? Uh, well, that's, that's a great question. Um, one of my very first jobs after law school was um, uh, working for the Legal Aid Bureau in Maryland in Baltimore City, where I was representing uh, foster children in the system. I was a lawyer for the children, and uh, it was overwhelming for me, both in the caseload. I, mean, you know, I think my first afternoon in court, I represented 16 children in an afternoon, um, wow. and also just learning about and and experiencing through them, through my clients, the circumstances they've been through, both that brought them into foster care and during the struggles while they're in foster care and those older clients who are working to transition out of the system. So just experiencing that, that level of hardship that a vulnerable child is experiencing and then starting to realize that some of the various agencies, institutions that are designed to protect those children are actually sometimes working against them angered me, you know, to be honest. And, you know, I wanted to understand it more and try to eventually help try to um, fix some of those problems. Well, I have to say the facts you exposed are pretty upsetting. Uh, I know Chris and I were pretty upset by a lot of the facts you brought out. I think of all the foster kids and orphans, the helpless elderly who are suffering because they're unaware they should be receiving these services or money, especially for the kids to put in the bank to use when they age out of the so-called system. How does that happen? Well, a lot of this has been behind the scenes. And, and in the book, I write about you know several different revenue practices. One of the most striking ones, I think, is what you're hitting on is how foster care agencies are actually taking resources from children in their care. And they'll go after different types of resources. Two of the main types have to do with social, social security benefits when the children either receive 
disability benefits through the Social Security system called SSI benefits because the children are disabled, or they can receive survivor benefits if their parents worked, paid into the system, and then their parents died, much like life insurance. The agencies aren't stopping there. They're also pursuing veterans assistance benefits of the foster children having to have parents who died in the military. So these are these are military people who have given their lives for our country, and they left this Social Security benefit or this VA benefit for their children, and their children can't touch it because it's being taken by the agencies, right? That's right. In that case, the foster care agency, that its sole reason for existing is to protect those children and their interests. It's actually taking those death benefits from the kids if the parents died in the military. Same thing with survivor benefits with any parents who worked and paid into the system. So, And these are monies that belong to the children legally, and then also the whole purpose of them is to help the children, right, of the monies. And then the agencies, their sole reason for existing is to help these children. They exist to protect and serve vulnerable foster care children. So you have an agency, when you have an agency that exists to serve is is instead turning its focus towards itself, harm results. And you're seeing that with these foster care kids across the country. They're, They're literally hiring contractors in several states, including Maryland, to help increase the number of children who are now determined disabled going through the whole process, not though to give any more additional services to those children, but to take the resulting monies. Extra money. The the levels of harm there is is overwhelming. So in other words, an orphan or foster kid may not be disabled, but if they say he needs eyeglasses, they would categorize him as disabled or her? Well, I don't think it goes to that extent. I do think the, the application process and the appeals process with Social Security is real. Um, My concern is that there are a lot of children in the system who are facing disabling conditions, several of them either physical or mental or learning disabilities. My concern is when the agency, instead of serving and helping with those disabling conditions, is using them to serve itself, is actually targeting disabled kids in order to take their money. That's sick at every single level, and and it's causing harm to the kids and to us because then the children do worse when they age out of care, so that hurts all of us. By the way, these priorities, taking care of orphans, foster kids, the disabled, and the helpless elderly, are supported and approved by taxpayers. We willingly pay those taxes to care for our most vulnerable citizens, but that's not what's happening to our money. Now, according to The Poverty Industry, written by our guest Daniel Hatcher, there's a triumvirate of three players that makes this outrage possible. You call it the Iron Triangle which is one, government agencies, two, special interest groups, and three, legislators. Daniel, please explain how they intersect to form a perfect wall to prevent the kids and seniors from receiving the health services and money actually intended for them. Sure, and, and I, I think it's helpful to, to think um, of, of one of the, of the initial Iron Triangle that was written about and talked about, or also called the, um, the military-industrial complex. You know, Eisenhower warned against this but in the military you know you have these this triangle where you have again like you said the government actors the special interest and the and the private contractors those who are left out of that triangle or, or who are harmed by it not served are us the public um the same thing is happening with the poverty's iron triangle in this case you have uh relationships between the, the federal government and the states and then the 
poverty industry contractors, the private contractors. Everyone is potentially benefiting, uh, benefiting other than the vulnerable populations. The uh, example that we've been talking about today so far has been foster children. So when you have this collaboration between the federal government and the states and private contractors, there's potential for immense good that can happen when you pool resources between the private industry and, and the public sector. If it's done well, you can provide immense, beneficial, wonderful services to those who need to help. But when you're using it to serve the Iron Triangle itself, right, rather than us, rather than the vulnerable beneficiaries, then harm results. Would you give us some example of the, the people with whom, the kids with whom you worked when you were representing them? Oh, sure. You know, there were many. And, and you know, it, it again, like I grew up in, in, uh, you know, in the Midwest and in Indiana and, and the mostly white middle class suburbs. So when I ended up working in Baltimore City, um, representing, you know, very low income children, facing, you know, barrier after barrier and difficulty after difficulty. And the same thing with their parents. These parents are struggling as well. But one of the children, and particularly that, that, that where I first encountered this issue of the foster children's benefits being taken, um, and I write about him in the book, Alex, he entered care when he was, I think it was about 15, when his mother died first, right? And then he moved around from placement to placement. He was never in a stable placement that the agency provided him. They located a, a brother, a, a much older brother, who was a potential placement, and his brother dies. They locate his father, who had not been involved. The father was a potential resource, then his father dies. You know, so everybody in this poor kid's family is dying. And then once his father dies, they realize Alex is eligible for survivor benefits. But instead of using that money to actually help Alex, they didn't even tell him about it. They didn't not notify him that they were applying for it or that they were taking control over it as representative payee. And then they took every penny. And it's not that just that money could have helped Alex financially, but if you think about the emotional connection, you know, of that last thing that his father left for him, work paid into the system, and he had this connection of money left to Alex, that connection between son and father could have been immense beyond the money that was left. Well, that's, that's something that really upset me uh, reading your book, was the children who are left to feel that nobody cares about them, that they don't have any hope for the future either because when they age out, they have no money. And my hunch is that they have a close relationship with law enforcement. Is that true? Unfortunately, yes. You know, the statistics are lined up against children when they age out of the system. Some states it's 18. Some some it starts at 18, but the children can stay in a little longer. So, But roughly 18 in some states, that's when it starts. Um, but when they age out of the system, um, you know, many of the children end up homeless or, um, you know, applying for benefits themselves. Very few have even finished high school. Um, the numbers that end up involved in the criminal justice system is striking and, and deeply concerning. And it's not surprising when you realize what these kids have gone through. Foster children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, at twice the level of Iraq war vets. Um, you know, so th this level of trauma that impacts kids at this time in their lives and the circumstances that they're going through, it stays with them um, and affects them as, as they uh, grow into adults. What about Medicaid maximization and diversion strategies that you write about? How does that work? 
Sure. Well, there's a lot there. And, and um, Medicaid is is another program that's supposed to be a collaboration, a partnership between the federal government and the states. The idea is it's a matching grant program. So Maryland is easy. It's, it's a 50-50 match state. If Maryland spends $50 of state money on Medicaid services, the state is supposed to be able to claim another $50 match from the federal government. So you have $100 total to provide services. Um, unfortunately, what many states are doing with that structure is that the initial match, the initial state spending is illusory, where the state may move money around, um, around triple money. They might give money to a health care provider and then force the, force the health care provider to give it right back. Or they might give it back to whom? Give it back to? To the health care provider. So a round trip of money. Or they might tax the healthcare provider at what's called bed taxes to uh, hospitals that serve a disproportionate share of the poor, nursing homes, and then give that money, tax it, and give the money back to the healthcare provider. So it's a round trip one way or the other. So the spending is illusory. The state isn't actually spending its match, but then they'll claim the match from the federal government. So that in itself is concerning when it's illusory, but then those some of those states, many, will take some, some all of that federal Medicaid match and divert that to general state coffers rather than using it for um, Medicaid purposes as intended. And it's it's deeply concerning because, you know, these are individuals who need help. And the healthcare providers that are trying to provide them with services need that aid directed to those who are supposed to receive it, to the low-income individuals. And it also racks up the cost of, of what we consider Medicaid costs that aren't real, right? You know, we don't really have an idea of how much and federal Medicaid spending is actually going towards federal Medicaid services because states are often diverting those funds. So how do we find out if our state is participating in something like that? Um, there's a lot of ways. In the book, I do talk about multiple states. So, I, so you know, I, I, I may have addressed some of the states there. Um, and then there are ways you can research, you know, if an individual became interested to look for, you know, are bed taxes happening in your state? You know, it's complex because following the money is hard and it's taken me a lot of time to unpack this, including some, um, you know, state public records requests and transparency differs state to state. The budget process differs state to state. And some of this is happening at the state level. Some of it devolves to the county level where, where, you know, the state will give the money to the county and then the county is the one that's engaged in these practices. So it's a challenge, but it is possible to find out. It just requires um, a good amount of digging. You know, my hope is that more journalists, you know, at the, you know, in, in the individual states are looking at it nationally. We'll start to dig in. What about the kids who are left damaged for life? I mean, this is not an economically sound program. If they're just taking money back, not giving it to the kids, if they are having a bad relationship with law enforcement due to what has happened to them through no fault of their own, especially when the parents have thought they provided for their children if something happened to them. Isn't that economically profoundly unsound? Because now we're stuck with lawbreakers, we have to put them in prison, or is that the direct pipeline from kidship to jail for especially kids of color? It's definitely connected to that. And, and many of the children in the foster care system are also connected while they're still youth to the juvenile justice system uh, for some of the same reasons that, you know, I've been discussing. But yes, you know, like, look, you know, look, you know, I, I think as we should care about vulnerable children from a moral perspective, you know, as, you know, I'm a parent, you know, like anybody, regardless of whether you're a parent, we should care about those of us who are the most vulnerable because we're all connected. And, and when somebody who's more vulnerable than us is hurt, it hurts us as well. But 
selfishly, if you just look at it from a financial perspective, when uh, a foster child in West Baltimore is harmed by these practices and that child is aging out of care and does worse and ends up homeless, ends up applying for public benefits, ends up involved in the criminal justice system, it hurts all of us financially in the long term, right? Not just the, the amount of money that we're spending to house that individual if, if they're incarcerated, right? Or the, um, the trauma that comes from crime that that person might be involved in, but also the lack of tax dollars are coming to play. If the person isn't economically stable, then they're not working above board in the system and paying into the, into the tax system as well. So it's just the reverberations are, are endless. Going from there to, to me, it's just heartbreaking, especially those kids who are left feeling that nobody really cares about them, there's nobody there for them, and that's got to color the way they go out into the world. Yes, you know, I've represented both both impoverished adults and children who do feel like the entire system, you know, you know, using that as like a monolithic term sure. is against them and and I understand that as much as I can, you know, like when everything that they've tried to do in life is a struggle and when they do have opportunities and they're taken away from them or when they view those who are um, part of the authority, part of the system that's supposed to help them and they're actually hurting them as well. Um, I understand that they feel jaded and, and that affects their view towards everything, you know, like in how well they do in school, whether or not they care about employment when they age out, you know, it, it hurts us all again. And of course, what kind of parents they'll be if they have children of their own. Unfortunately, that's correct. The cycle continues and, and I've seen that um, frequently in, in my work. Why isn't more known about what you accurately call the poverty industry? Well, a lot of different reasons. You know, many of this, much of this is, is you know, difficult to understand in terms of the intricacies of it. And a lot of it is hidden behind the system, you know, like behind the, the agency processes. So it's not like they're out advertising the, these practices that they're involved in. I think, you know, children don't have a voice, you know, especially vulnerable children and vulnerable adults when you know, low income individuals don't have the same amount of people working for them. Um, I think the press does do a good job sometimes in covering issues involving poverty in the United States, but not nearly enough. So we don't know um, the level of digging to understand what's happening to our vulnerable citizens is not known to the level that we need to know. I think most people are inherently good. And I think most people, when they realize harm is happening to a vulnerable population of no fault for their own, most people care and we want to do something to fix it. You know, I do think, you know, people from different sides of the aisle politically we should have that debate, and that's a good thing in terms of how to help, but we shouldn't disagree that we should help, right, at least, you know, to, to serve those who are the most vulnerable. How can we turn this around? And I'm not just thinking in big numbers. I'm thinking of individually. Like, what can the individual do? In your book, you say that we can kind of step up and see that a foster child or an orphan is represented to make sure they get their money, to make sure that they know how to open a bank account and that sort of thing. Well, there's a lot, and, and it, you know, it depends on the issues we're talking about. We're going to foster children or um, you know, an elderly individual in a nursing home who, who's not getting the services that they need, a uh, struggling uh, low-income adult. Um, so that's a big question, but, but you know, a lot of it is, is just you know, trying to be aware. You know, I think awareness is key to start with. So you know, to the extent there are articles, news articles or books or information available, 
keep your eyes open, keep your heart open, keep your mind open to learn about this. So more specifically than that, you know, if somebody is interested in this particular issue of agencies of states taking foster children's resources, they can try to connect to their state representatives, you know, either their state senators or their state delegates. Each state is different in terms of how the legislative process works there, but making that connection to try to make sure they know what's happening and get them interested and they could they could introduce state legislation. You know, one individual could help push forward somebody to sponsor a bill to try to stop this practice at the state level. Also, people can get involved at the federal level. There has been some efforts to encourage change through policy reform on this, either through legislation or the Social Security Administration could change this itself. You know, right now, a federal bill was introduced um, from a congressman out of Illinois, Danny Davis, um, and that still has possible possibility, you know, if it ever got legs and the committee actually gave it a hearing or gave it the notice that it's due, then we would have discussion on this issue with elect, uh, elected officials. Problem is, at the federal level, there are lots of bills that are introduced that no one ever looks at. So that's again, comes back to awareness. If you get a bill introduced, either at the state level or at the federal level, how do we increase the awareness of all of us so politicians really care? you know, to make sure that that something happens with this. I think the press, again, you know, has has an ability. And what you're doing right now, you know, starting a podcast is an, an enormous benefit. There is a nonprofit here in Washington state. And by the way, I was shocked to find out that it doesn't matter if you're in a blue or a red state, that this these practices still take place. But in Washington state, we have a nonprofit called The Treehouse, run by a woman named Janice Avery. And she has lifted kids. They support foster kids there uh, in a number of ways. But they've lifted the high school graduation level from 20 to 80 percent here in Washington state. That's wonderful. That's a nonprofit organization. So are you suggesting that maybe we get involved, volunteer it at uh, these types of nonprofit organizations that are assisting children in need? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if an individual wants to start to start to participate in fixing these problems, you can. And that's a great way to learn about it by volunteering with nonprofit organizations. And it could be ground level food assistance. It could be policy work. It could be, um, like you mentioned, assistance regarding education. It could be legal assistance. You know, if you're a lawyer working for a big law firm and you want to provide provide pro bono assistance, there's lots of opportunities also, those nonprofits can get involved. And like, if, I hope like if anybody's interested in, in collaborating on these issues in these states, I hope people email me and individuals can, too. You know, I, I can help people brainstorm and how to um, educate themselves and find out what's happening in their state, because there can be potential reform efforts. Again, as you're mentioning, with a nonprofit getting involved and they might spur legislative change. Um, if it's a legal nonprofit, you know, like a legal aid organization, they might be able to challenge this legally. I think there are a lot of legal challenges that can still be brought forward on this. Terrific. So what about the individual child, though? Can we step up? Is there a, a, an avenue by which we can actually step in and personally represent a child who's not getting benefits, who should be getting benefits, to make sure that that money is being given to them? Like, is there some place we can sign up to be? I know we've got guardian ad litems and that sort of thing, but right. what kind of participation can we seek through that? No, that's a wonderful question. And again, state by state and county by county is different in terms of what organizations are available for, to provide that assistance. Like you mentioned, guardian ad litems. There's CASA, court appointed special advocate. 
um, services that where individuals can get involved and, and try to understand what's happening with children and advocate for them. If, some, if, if somebody actually knows a child personally or is a relative of a child where this is happening and if the child is still in foster care and let's say their survivor benefits are being taken, that individual might actually be able to even step up and challenge the appointment of the state as representative payee. Through the Social Security Administration, they could apply to become the representative payee, right, and then actually can serve or use those monies to actually help the child as intended. So there's a lot of different things somebody could do depending on their connection and, and you know, depending on what level of, of assistance that they want to get involved in. So say you're a, a lawyer and you want to work pro bono and help one of these kids, whom would they contact? Probably, you know, they need to find out who is, who, what organization is, is the advocate, the appointed advocate for children in foster care. In Maryland, it's, it's, most of them are through the Legal Aid Bureau. It's different state by state in terms of what organizations are providing the legal representation for kids. They're probably the most likely to be able to spot when something like this is happening, right? And then they might refer out a case. Like if, if a pro bono lawyer wants to handle that legal challenge, they might be able to get involved on, on that level or, or, or um, partner with the legal aid organization as, as co-counsel. Wonderful. What is your email? dhatcher, H-A-T-C-H-E-R, at ubalt, U-B-A-L-T dot E-D-U. So are you writing any more books? Um, I don't have another book in the works yet, but I have some additional articles that I'm working on, including an article I'm working on now uh, regarding tribal sovereignty and poverty within tribes, um, often, unfortunately, deep poverty happening in, in the tribal reservations around the country. And I'm addressing some of the same issues regarding how child support payments that are owed um, if, a, uh, if a custodial parent is low income and receiving some form of aid, those, those child support payments are actually even taken from the kids as well. And tribes, I believe, have even more flexibility to enact policies that are more child-friendly, that truly serve the best interests of children, so I'm exploring that. Well, I can say to every listener, by the way, if you are a foster kid or an orphan and want the 411 about what we're talking about, Ask your local or school library for the audiobook version or the written copy of Daniel's book, The Poverty Industry. This is information you should have. You should know that you are entitled to that money. And I think especially for kids, audiobooks make a little more sense because they may find the book a little daunting. But listening to it, I don't think they would. Professor Daniel Hatcher with the University of Baltimore School of Law, author of The Poverty Industry. Thank you so very much for joining us at CP's Deep Dive. You are making a difference. If you want to contact me, Colleen Patrick, email CP's Deep Dive, that's C-P-Z, Deep Dive, one word, at gmail.com. I'm happy to forward any messages you may have for Daniel Hatcher there, too. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with Professor Rachel Wall from the University of Virginia, author of Just Violence, Torture and Human Rights in the Eyes of Police. This book is very insightful. While police and human rights advocates duke it out, the triumvirate of politicians, the 1%, and the dysfunctional courts create a wall that prevents peace. It's pretty fascinating. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. We record at Bayman Studio. Chris is at baymanstudio.com. I'm at ColleenPatrick.com. Let's make a difference.